the wounded hearts out there, because we left Valentine's Day in the dust due to the uh, untimely death of Kirk Douglas. Of course, he was getting up there, but uh, never a good time to die. Uh, yeah, which is also the name of the James Bond movie that's coming out soon. <laughs> I like to be topical. <laughs> Wind recording yeah, I, memorial. <laughs> I don't remember, did we do a Valentine's Day movie last year? Uh, we had like Groundhog Day around here, which I think was close. Well, we enough. did it for we, we did that for Groundhog Day though. That's the literal yeah. holiday that we did ground, you know, Groundhog Day for. I'm trying to remember if we did a uh, a romance movie. We should probably going forward. I did a I did a tweet thread about my favorite romance. You movies. did. Uh, you had a few in there. Would you like to highlight a couple? Sure, sure. Uh, I suppose because I talk about my love affair with Fred Astaire that I recently, you know, cultivated as, you know, and I linked to the uh, piece I wrote on Top Hat, which is the most recent thing I have at the moment. Oh, that's a great uh, piece. Everyone should go read at thetwingeeks.com. We don't give our address out enough. So. Yeah. No, no, people will be listening to this and not know we have an actual website that we run as well. I know. And we'll get better at uh, at least dropping the name twingeeks.com. That's where we are. The yes. Twin Geeks. Definitive the, article the there. Yeah. It's an important part of our name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. I highlighted uh, Casablanca as well as a few screwball comedies I love, like uh, uh, Ball of Fire, which is a Billy Wilder written one. And then I also, uh, well, I didn't mention Lady Eve, but I should have as well because Barbara Stanwyck's just great. But the other one I, I watched, uh, well, I, I, I tweeted about and I watched as well as I watched uh, Romancing the Stone, which is an unusual okay. pick for me. I think everyone expects me to be Hollywood film snob, but I love Michael <laughs> Douglas swinging across a you know a vine in the jungle, saving <laughs> Who doesn't? Kathleen Turner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, absolutely. Oh, um, I found it. I, fa- I found what we did last year. Yeah, we did ten we things did. I hate. We did ten things I hate about you last year. That's right, and that was a very good topical one. So, if you want a Valentine's special, uh, the time has passed. But uh, yeah. go listen to that one. Go back and listen to that. We're just gonna use that one again. This that's our yeah. Valentine's for this year as well. <laughs> Every year we should just do Groundhog Day and then 10 Things I Hate About You afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I spent the Valentine's, or long President's Valentine's weekend pretty sick, so our whole family's been sick. Even though it's a justice birthday, we didn't get out to do a lot. You're, you're sick? I, I can't tell at all. You sound perfectly fine. Yeah, uh, that's because I like cleared my head right before this. It took like four different kinds of cold meds, so I... In- in all fairness, at this point, I've just presumed or assumed you're perpetually sick uh, I'll tell all the time you for our podcast. It's I part of your character like, now. <laughs> I should come on and tell people when I feel well. That, that yeah. would be like a good bit. You would save us so much time. We wouldn't have to have a whole section every week be like, oh, Calvin's sick again. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's a good time of year to be sick. Uh, Valentine's guess, Day well, is a nice time to stay in with the family, but I wish I could have yes. gotten out for more for the wife's birthday. Oh, you get to cuddle in bed and share your germs with each other, and it doesn't matter because all, you're all sick. You can't get more sick, necessarily. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's kind of hard not to be sick up here in the general Washington area. I think it's been raining for, like, 40 days straight or something. Yeah, yeah uh, we've had three days of sun the last two months, so no vitamin D. Yeah, so no surprise that you're sick. I'm surprised I'm not terribly sick, you know, all the time. Yeah, I, I, mean, know, I guess my constitution is just it. a bit better. <laughs> There's, um, there have been releases. It's been weird. Like every February, you get like a slew of horror as counter programming and comedy as counter programming, and 
a couple of rom-coms, but there's really nothing notable to me. Um, the photograph has kind of been buzzed about as like a more African-American notebook. So uh, I guess couples should go see that if they wanted a romance. I suppose. Uh, I, I can't think of any real romance films mm. in general, but just in, in general, it's been dying. I think last year we talked about there was a Rebel Wilson like meta romance okay. movie. <laughs> Why do you have that to remind you, me of this? Well, because it just it stuck out in my mind as like the only thing of note. I'm trying to recall everything from last year. It's weird. Oh no! Have last it, year we had a Happy Death Day to You come out at least on Valentine's Day. Oh yes, the is Calvin still stands as the only person representing the series. And Alita, maybe Alita was maybe the next. It was one, ar- right? it was around know. the same time. Yeah. Uh, so I guess there was more blockbuster appeal with something like that. But I think as we noted last year as well, like the the heavy hitters didn't come till March when we got us was the first big yeah big picture of the year. And at the tail end of this month, we're getting uh, the Invisible Man, which is supposed to be. Well, there's been great releases, of course. We had Fortune Lady on Fire on Valentine's Day, which is a, a lot more limited, because I think Neon spent their entire budget on winning Best Picture, so uh, nobody got yeah. to see a really great movie from France. Right. Well, and it's getting its buzz now, and Neon's doing its job promoting yeah. it on social media, but that is, it's a vestige of 2019 still, as we see those um, you know non-American releases trickle out over here eventually. I, I almost think it's to their advantage that they didn't have to fight it uh, if France nominated it for Best Picture and it was going against Parasite, that would be uh, too much work for Neon to run that, that, that campaign. It would have been uh, a non-campaign. In hindsight, that was probably the thing, is that they're like, all right, we're going to make sure that Parasite is the very clear head of the pack so it can <laughs> yeah. actually win. If it had, like, competition in that foreign language category, then maybe it wouldn't have gone over so swimmingly. I think the only thing I could argue is possibly better is maybe Honeyland. The more I think about it, it might be a better movie than Parasite, but we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, I'll, I'm seeing more people now watch it, and they're like, oh, what the hell, why did American Factory win? But, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's like, it's still, that that was a really expected one. Like, you know, yeah, it was of one of the for sure categories when we did our kind of exchange of, you know, guesses and such, that that one was, everyone was on the same page with that, because American Factory had all the buzz. Just getting a really weird doc into foreign picture, or international, I guess they call it now, is probably a victory in itself, so I'm okay. Yeah. Um, otherwise, this month, there's, you know, we're, we're getting a lot more Netflix releases. I feel like the streaming platforms are realizing they could fill in the gap where we're staying at home from the theater. So, like, To All the Boys I Loved Again, or Before, is coming out, and a ton of reality shows are coming out. Um, I've been binging reality nonstop. I think you've talked about, I think, the circle it was on the podcast yeah. before. I think we, we've been over that in one point, but just recently... <laughs> yeah, this morning you you unexpectedly turned in a, a feature piece on the reality show stuff, which I initially rolled my eyes at, of course, but when I edited it this morning, I found it very uh, well thought out and well considered within our, our cultural landscape right now, and I'm very excited for that one to hit the site. Probably next week is when we'll uh, put it up after this podcast. Yeah, after the week soon after this over. podcast. Yes. Uh, I kind of wanted to look at what the cultural situation was that was allowing these reality shows to kind of slip back in both the good and bad of that i mean after the state of the union i kind of realized that we were really watching a reality show anyway so i kind of wanted to tie that in and look at the political ramifications of that 
Um, and they're all politics now. Uh, we have Survivor, which last year had like a big uh, sexual assault violation Scandal. thing with one of the contestants. Um, and now it's come back and it's taken 20 of the previous winners, so it's gone all in. It has nothing else to offer the next season, which is great. Well, not to undermine kind of the uh, horrible, you know, situation that is with the sexual, you know, harassment stuff going on within the show, but if this current reality show of a, uh, you know, political landscape has taught us anything, it means that sexual harassment doesn't mean anything against you in terms of popularity. Yeah, I don't think (laughs) it's... I mean, it's going to explode in in consideration this year, unfortunately, or otherwise. So, um, I, Netflix, of course, are making like a block of really great shows. Uh, I enjoyed The Circle, and Love is Blind is a really cute dating show. So, uh, My wife wanted to watch that for a lot of the weekend. It's just nice to see, I think, uh, what Netflix is doing that m- most other streaming services or any producers really out there are. They're not... I mean, Netflix has the widest net of any distributor, I'm finding. And the fact that they're doing all these different shows because they're also producing, you know, like K-dramas and stuff and all sorts of interesting things. So uh, it's really nice to see the vast variety that they're going to continue to maintain. And although with that variety comes a, you know, uh, a great depth of uh, quality, you know, it's not always going to be consistent across the board. Uh, That does mean that there's something for everyone. And I think that's what's going to continue to keep Netflix propped up as uh, more and more competition comes into the fold. I don't think shows like Love is Blind actually matter or or are engaging to, like, the cultural conversation. But uh, something about the way Netflix does, like, all the shows at once without advertising concerns kind of enabled them to allow, like, a more complete interracial story to be the entire focus of the first episode. So, I mean, it's like a new way to look at dating shows. I don't want to go back to, like, Bachelor or something with my wife. So uh, there, there are options now, I guess is the thing. Uh, and, and I, too, advocate for the kind of more mindless uh, reality or competition shows. Uh, I know they have some things like that as well, but I haven't heard anything like... You know, I, I miss game shows a lot, too. More yeah. of the physical competition ones that, you know, were all over the place for a long time. And, you know, as we move away from uh, cable television, you know, we need to find distributors who are going to finance that kind of more, you know, mindless or competition-based uh, television. Because I think there's still certainly a place for it in our... Society. I think Netflix has even taken runs of it, like putting like the top Jeopardy competitions on there, and those exploded in popularity. So I think they are going to produce more of the uh, daytime TV as well. Yeah, it should be interesting to see how they go going forward. And again, keep an eye out, uh, listeners, for that piece that Calvin has on uh, the state of our uh, cultural landscape and how reality television fits into that i'm making the twin geeks your home for cinema verite i've also watched it i'm going back to documentaries i also watch a lot of mcmillions this week which is the uh, mcdonald's monopoly show have you heard about that I was the no i've not heard about that though i've heard of course about mcdonald's monopoly yeah. uh, uh so which is u- ubiquitous <laughs> They found, like, one family of it that was winning everything, and this guy named Uncle Jerry was, like, making a scam with these tickets. So it's a really fun, almost procedural-like investigation where uh, one guy named Doug, he, like, heads the investigation. He really just wants to go undercover. I think he he really wants, like, the status and, like, the movie. <laughs> he, he really wants to, like, turn it into, like, a movie he's making about... Um, sort of like a reality tv in a way he wants to film these people and try to get their secrets out and 
he's thinking outside the box. It's a really fun investigation show that kind of like fits into like the, you know, Sarah Koenig ish. Like, um, we want everything serialized and broken down for us, like an investigation now. So it fits into like the podcast mold. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Is that also on uh, Netflix or is that elsewhere? That's uh, HBO. It's uh, five okay. episodes. We're a few in. I'm really enjoying it, and I'll review that in a few weeks. So that'll well, be nice. It'll be good to to see as well. I'm interested in these uh, less narratively driven, I guess, uh, or fictionalized stories that we are uh, tend to focus our attention around uh, in the uh, filmic landscape. Um, do you have any affinity for Sean the Sheep? By the way. You know, I like Ardman yeah. a lot uh, as a company, and of course, you know, last year I went and I watched through all of their Wallace and Gromit shorts and features okay. and everything, which was so much fun, but I did not get around to the Sean the Sheep series, but I, I hear lots of love for it, especially as a more uh, visually driven uh, narrative, as I know that it is basically uh, silent comedies in the present, which is a nice niche. So it's been years for me. Was Wallace and Gromit basically that same approach? No, no, no. Well, and... Oh yeah, Wallace okay. and Gromit has dialogue, everything, but they do do a great job with uh, physicality and, and visual, mm. you know, storytelling throughout it. Uh, I highly recommend uh, their best is probably the, the half hour or so short, The Wrong Trousers, oh, yeah. which has a fantastic chase sequence, uh, of course, towards the end of it, which is all, you know, there's no dialogue or anything, it's just mounted tension tension brilliant music great great set piece probably you could use it as a brilliant example in most anything and it's you know stop motion animated at that which is extra incredible there are very few like animations i remember like going to the theater as a kid and f- realizing i was seeing something different like i think chicken run is one of them where i think we have a shared affinity for the style and uh, kind of like the exuberant personality of that compared to everything else being animated I'm gonna. Uh, oh my god! I love Chicken Run. Chicken Run is. Uh, oh, it's, it's gonna sound silly to say, but it's a <laughs> in a category I call my chicken soup movies, yeah. where I just put them on and it makes me happy, and I can just you know, no, no matter my mood, it just brightens me up. And Chicken Run, I can watch endlessly. I love the the fun of it. The animation's great. The comedy, the World War Two prison escape movie homage. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's hilarious very stuff. Great Escape and. It, oh yeah, Great Escape, so Salag Seventeen. You got your uh, Grand Illusion kind of in there as well, which is it's all really great stuff. It's it's interesting films for a uh, animated chicken movie to pull from. <laughs> well, uh, Shaun the Sheep Farmageddon's out on Netflix now, so it's very accessible. There probably I imagine it would end up in Academy Awards next year. I don't know how these things work anymore. It might have been submitted last year. I I can't keep track. Uh, I'm I'm guessing it. I'm going to guess it okay. wasn't. I'm going to assume that... Uh, I'm going to hope anyway, because I think Ardman is a company that really uh, deserves that Academy attention. I don't know if they've won for anything it's, before. I know they. I think they were nominated for Chicken Run, at least. It's confusing but. to me, because it came out like October in UK, and I don't know, because the Oscars include UK things. I don't know if it was part of competition, or we'll find out this year. Yeah, uh, hopefully so. Uh, did you enjoy oh, the film? Yeah, I loved it. I have a review of that coming up that's <laughs> written there, but that'll be next week as well, I imagine. Um, it's just so charming, and it brings in, like, 2001 referencing pieces, so it's fun to see Armin take on new genres and bigger ideas, and uh, the silent comedy works ex- exceptionally well. I think you'd have a blast with this one, especially. 
I bet the the one thing I have to ask is that does do I need any previous foundation with the Sean the Sheep series, be it the shorts or the previous feature they did, I don't, or should I just I, just jump into it? I don't think you need anything. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's it speaks for itself so well. Um, I love there are such great visual gags. My favorite is like a a truck goes into the land after it goes off a ramp, and he's drive trying to drive away with the alien, but Sean the Sheep's hand is so firmly pressed against the wheel he removes it and it reveals that he's like holding onto a clay surface like i love the recognition of medium and form in that that's good it's good to hear that they're bounced back i believe hardman's last feature you weren't as big on which was, was that early, early man, man? It, it, i think that was the last thing they did i don't care it was about a couple of years back now <laughs> <laughs> oh and before that they had the the pirates movie which was fun but i felt like not great overall yeah uh, I didn't but see it is one. nice it's just nice to see them back in in hand done animation again, or, or not hand done, but um, mm. claymation, claymation specifically again. Well, well, they've yeah because they've done uh, you know uh, digitally done features with the same art mm. styles and such in the past, but this is really where their bread and butter is and what people truly love them for. Um, you know, we we've got a little bit of that with like Leica still as yeah. well over here in our in I'm, our stomping ground. I but feel like Leica though is so technically proficient, and so you know they have like such advanced ideas about what they're going to do with their claymation. It's so simple in Shaun the Sheep. It's it's just so right. It's so tangible in a way that well, and like uh, a, that Leica isn't anymore. Leica tends to sacrifice good writing in exchange for better animation and a focus on that. And and that tends to make us less favorable to revisit them yeah. than a lot of the uh, Ardman stuff, which just seems to last forever in our memories. Yeah, I don't think this could age at all. So I, I mean, I think it will be a Netflix classic. <laughs> I'll keep going back to it. I like it. All right, that's great. I'm looking forward to it. I think I will check it out as soon as I find some time in my busy movie schedule. Um, how about time for Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey? They changed the title on me after I posted the review, by the way. Yeah, which I thought so was, I don't know, it's not a good title to begin with, because it's long and convoluted for no good reason, but it's still better than throwing Harley Quinn's name at the front of it, because that's... No, that's what they just, did. Uh, yeah, I know that's what they did, okay. it's just, it's, <laughs> it's an obviously transparent attempt to try and put more butts in seats, yeah. uh, in the same way that they did with uh, Edge of Tomorrow, which we talked about not too right. long ago. Yeah, definitely. Um, and but it, this one, it kind of yeah, has the it, same failure. It, I, I think they expected so much from this at box office because Suicide Squad did well, but that had great marketing. I thought this had terrible marketing, but it is a good movie. Yeah, um, and people keep saying online like there was this, this big backlash against the film for its supposedly poor box office, you know, uh, returns. But then there was backlash against the backlash for saying, no, actually, if you look, the film is doing decently. It's got a really good worldwide gross. It's just not as high as the ridiculous expectation of the film. Yeah. You know, it's still going to make its money back. It's not a bomb by any means. It's just not what I think everyone expected, which is unreasonable to begin with. I mean, I just think it's fantastic that we have an Asian-American woman making a big-budget movie, let alone a large superhero movie, because we never see that. Yeah, well, it's nice to see, again, more diversity in the director's seat. We always like that, and, of course, we're seeing that expand more and more, uh, even to stories, uh, you know, again, especially to stories that aren't, like, like we're not boxing them into solely stories about, you know, their ethnicity or gender or whatever. Yeah, and you know? it's not, like, just about the diversity, right? Like, it's trying to tell a fun story. It's not just diversity for diversity's sake. 
Right. It's it's nice to I think chart though though it was slower progress than we'd all hope. You know, the uh, superhero film franchise has uh, created greater diversity in its behind the you know camera uh, work, workers than even many of the other big Hollywood films going on right now. We're seeing that diversity, and it's becoming a almost a marketing standpoint from it as well. There is becoming a thing where there's a, a feeling of resentment building because uh, diversity can happen in these big budget popular movies, but it's not happening in a way that can be recognized by the awards. Like two weeks ago, all the jokes were about, of course, where the um, where's the representation? Like, are they actually leaving people out? My feeling is that we're not we're just not putting diverse people in award specific movies. Uh, we're rewarding movies that are outside that purview like parasite of course winning uh kind of changes the feeling around that yeah it's just it's certainly uh as far as gender diversity goes that's still some steps we need to take as we've seen by the last two years not having any women directors in the category despite many being deserving uh is a real shame but hopefully we'll see that uh shift a bit more as we get into this next year here, and we see, again, more I, diversity already. I guess I just uh, don't know, like, if the like Greta Gerwig one wasn't going to be included, like, what What do you think of this year? The big deal about the Birds of the Tank, really, is that uh, Sonic has been a wild success. Yeah, that's uh, kind of unexpected from when we walked out of the theater, but I guess also not entirely. I don't know, because our sentiment, I think our shared sentiment when we went and saw it was that it was entertaining, and I think, uh, like base level satisfying like i wasn't bored watching it at any point but i definitely felt condescended to and that was reflected in in both our reviews of it which you received a lot of backlash for i have to say (laughs) (laughs) i did really receive pretty um disproportionate amount of backlash for the things i said in the review i think um yeah it they're pretty burn up Sonic fans. If you if you criticize this one success that they could cling on to right oh, now, oh, it's almost as bad as like uh, I don't know. There's a lot of really toxic fan bases, but I guess we could put Sonic in the same category as the Star Wars uh, fan base and such now because they they definitely came with their knives wielded for you, and that was uh, very unfair and unwarranted, especially considering I think there were some uh, other Seattle critic friends you had that were even lower <laughs> on the film than you were. I I don't know. Even like within that community, I feel like I'm probably pretty low. Um, and it, uh, I don't know. You you got to run fast. I, I kind of I feel a little bad because I think our our post screening discussion, my negative feelings influenced you to be even more negative on the film. I think as I was writing it though, I kind of kept leaning toward a lower score as I went. Um, I think you could see, like, in the review, yeah. as it develops, there's, like, an apathy developing as it's written. Oh, and that's, that's the feeling, I think. Again, there's a surface-level entertainment in the film, and there's yeah. a mi- mild I mean, peaks of comedy that keep you engaged, but you can see the soulless product just, you know, kind of blatantly there on screen, especially through the the emotional pandering and the uh, totally obvious product placement and shelling out to these companies. The amount of Olive Garden references is just ludicrous and unacceptable. And I don't think there's any good or politically correct way to say it, but the Sonic fan, I don't know, I feel like it falls a little bit like on a spectrum of like furry interest and um, there's no good way to say <laughs> this. <laughs> but it, 
It's a very unique and different kind of uh, fan base that's very over-invested in one very simple thing. Yeah, and that's always kind of been the case with the Sonic fans. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say, like, they fall on the spectrum. No, no, no. They're very uniquely interested in something very simple. They're very passionate. Again, I think think that stems from the uh, console wars and where you identify with one side so much. And because Sega ended up being on the severe losing end of that, they rallied around the icon so much that he's become a kind of martyr in a way. (laughs) He's become a lot more than he could hold, I think. So. So that's... Um, I mean, I felt the same way, like, around Dreamcast era, so in some way I have sympathy for their takes. Right. It's, uh, it's just, it's a little uh, unfortunate when it bleeds over to criticizing, you know, film critics like this who, who have legitimate takes on, on this film, which is, uh, pandering and not very well written at all. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, um, I, I wish the film had more to say for itself. Uh, I feel like we have to say everything for it. Yeah. Um. I just don't feel like it's that imaginative or that fun. I think they could do a lot better. I think the one thing to say is we are guaranteed a sequel now. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, is that, you know, the, the Sonic fans should, uh, despite their history, have a higher standard for themselves, I think. You know, the, the people can do better for a Sonic movie than this. I mean, I just want to say, like, you know, go see it or turn this off now, because I'm always say spoiler, but when Robotnik goes to like that mushroom yeah. kingdom or whatever that uh, Sonic and Knuckles referencing place is. Um, I realize we're going to get Knuckles and Tails in the next one. I kind of want to go see it. Um, and if you were worried about spoilers and Sonic fandom, fuck you. <laughs> uh, so what do we have for our feature presentation? <laughs> uh, let's see. For our uh, feature this week, we have... Uh... Why am I forgetting? Oh, yeah. Um, the good, the bad, and the weird. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, uh, so we have turned back to Korean cinema again in the wake of uh, Parasite's historic uh, cultural takeover uh, for our Western. Of course, we want another Western this week. And we are looking at this one, which is very interesting departure, but still very much in the classical style of uh, very Italian-influenced Westerns, which, of course, we love here just as much as the American ones. I think it may be the only South Korean Western film, so it is especially unique, like within its own context. There, I know in Asia we have like the Japanese westerns and uh, a lot of Chinese and a lot of samurai bleed over, but yeah, uh, South Korea itself, this is the first one. Uh, as far as I know, and this was I know a big deal. I looked around, <laughs> yeah. As far as I know, and I've seen like one or two like other ones, like I saw. Uh, Sukiyaki Western Django, which mm. is the the Japanese one from Takashi Miike. I hated it because it was just like <laughs> it was so like fan like like fanboyish and overindulgent and totally disconnected from reality in a terrible way. And and Quentin Tarantino's there being weird and making Akira oh. references for no reason. Oh, and weird! It, it just felt super like fourteen year old boy wet dreamy, and uh, it was I hated it the whole time. So this was this was way better, of course, and I, this was actually this is the first time I sat down and saw it because I, like many other people here, am naughty and have not exposed myself to enough South Korean cinema yet, despite uh, the major highlights that I had seen prior to seeing Parasite. So this is uh, I, part of my education. 
I mean, I think surprisingly, I got to this before most of my Korean cinema, so it's very formative for my interest in that. Um, and I, of course, just grabbed it because I'm such a great fan of Leone. Right. And uh, uh, the cover just spoke to me right away. I mean, how couldn't it? It looks so fun, and it, it's it is. as fun as it looks. That's, and that's the thing is that, of course, the name and uh, the rest of the film as well, it, it takes so much from Leone Westerns especially, not just the titular one that it's borrowing its name from, but all of them, Fistful, A uh, Few Dollars More, once upon a time in the west especially i got a lot of once upon a time in the west vibes uh especially even a lot of duck you sucker you oh yeah it. there's some bits in there well especially when you when you take the time period of um the film and you and you transport it like you kind of have with duck you sucker because secretly i don't count duck you sucker as a western because it's mm. just, it's not part of the west there's no american characters it's entirely about the mexican revolution instead and that whole conflict there and it's I'll, more like his war trilogy than a western. Well, trilogy. originally, and that's the thing about Ducky Sucker, is that there's like five or so names for it. But the one that's more reflective mm-hmm. of the trilogy it's technically part of is Once Upon a Time, The Revolution, because it's about the Mexican Revolution and that. So it is very, though, though visually it is uh, still within the same vein as the the other westerns that Leone did, it's very detached from that and more about, uh, again, this idea of revolution, which is not really a theme of western films uh, as we see as much so so i kind of only tangentially consider it a western i like to be very picky about genres but for some reason despite the fact that the good the bad the weird is not in even america or you know any of the western countries over here takes place in the 1940s and has definitely no american characters as well i i consider it within the tradition of the western still as well because it maintains the visual style, the thematics, the uh, the ideas, and I feel like it blends really well the Korean culture with the Italian style and the American tradition. They all come together in this really interesting melting pot of a film. Uh, speaking of melting pots, I always enjoyed that the director had always said that he wanted to make a kimchi western. So yeah, he's thinking, that's... as opposed to spaghetti, he wants to make a really spicy like plate of like fermented cabbages. That's you know, it has a a real fragrance to it and a real feeling that is distinctly Korean. And that is the fun thing. And I think it is a really good uh, name for this uh, kind of style as well that he kind of has given it here. Because that's the, I think, the the most admirable thing about The Good, Bad, and the Weird is uh, that it maintains its Korean identity, uh, you know, entirely throughout, despite all of the different influences and the stylistic demands uh, of the homage that's uh, present here. Is it still distinctly Korean with its genre bending, its uh, com- comedy, its very frenetic pacing and uh, action, which there is a lot of. It's it's almost entirely just an action movie. <laughs> it's one of those movies where there is no real plot. So I guess I basically sum the plot up as there's a map that's coveted and people want to follow it. Yeah, it's it's got the same kind of structure uh as the good the bad and the ugly to no surprise is that there is a treasure and that these characters want and then the you know the good one and the the obtuse one they kind of work together in a team but it's it's not as much about their dynamic like blondie and tuco is in that film uh no song uh Um, i think i think action takes like such a high precedence over characterization in this film Yes, you certainly. hardly get any development. Especially in regards to the good and the bad characters, because uh, yeah. while they're very, like, 
present and dominating in the film, and they're very well uh, sketched. They are broadly sketched, and there's no characterization to them like there is in the uh, Leone counterparts. But I will attest to uh, Song Kang Ho's character, uh, the weird in this film. He is very well done, and he gets a lot of attention, probably even more than Tuco does in Leone's film. I've been so fascinated post-Parasite with his career, sketching it back, and um, just watching, like, now I've watched Memories of Murder and The Host and this, and I'm going to go watch, I think it's called The Taxi Driver after, um, yeah, that or was A Taxi Driver. A Taxi Driver, that was one from last year as well he did alongside Parasite, I believe. Which is interesting to me because, well, I drive Uber for a living, so it's a, I, I enjoyed his part in Paris, I, and I believed him as a cab driver. I always think about it when I'm driving someone who has coffee. Oh, smooth turns. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. But yeah, I think uh, as more people get exposed to uh, Korean cinema, and especially those films of uh, Bong Joon-ho, and they see the abundance of uh, Song Kang-ho in his filmography as a kind of... Uh, Mifune to Bong's uh, Kurosawa, so to speak. Mm. The, that'll open even more doors for people to the variety of films that uh, Song has made. And he will come forth, I think, as the most uh, prolific Korean uh, actor for American audiences, even considering now that we already have an exposure to him in American films through something like Snowpiercer, which he's one of the major characters in as well. I have very minimal familiarity with director Kim Ji-won too. I've seen uh, A Bittersweet Life, I think it's called, uh, a couple months ago. A Bittersweet Life, Um, yeah. Yeah, A Bittersweet Life, which was very stylistically present, and I kind of felt the same thing, so it didn't have much archetyping, but it was stylistically bold, and I saw I had to look at the trailer even to figure out, but I saw saw The Devil a long time ago, and um, that was kind of the same, very violent and very sure in its style, but I felt like didn't have much story beyond that. I've heard uh, interesting things, of course, but I saw the devil that's on my mm-hmm. list of things. I've got my list of Korean cinema to get to now, and of course, uh, it, it piques my interest because I've heard good things about it, but also because it stars uh, Troy Min-sik, uh, who is uh, the main actor in Old Boy as well, which was actually my, my first taste of uh, Korean cinema some time ago. I do wonder if this was my first. I feel like it may be this or that uh, one, The Housemaid, that I watched uh, last week. But uh, at the same time, I know uh, this was a big year for a Korean cinema. Mm-hmm. We're in 2009. Mother has just come out. So uh, Bong Joon-ho is really elevating himself in the conversation. Well, uh, at the same time, we're getting this weird Korean Western, which is weirdly the most expensive Korean film made at the time. I was... uh, it's made for the equivalent of $10 million U.S. <laughs> I was curious as well, while we were talking about uh, Kim Ji-woon, if you saw his 2013 American film as well, which was the Schwarzenegger, Johnny Knoxville film, The Last Stand? No. No? No, I haven't. Is that good? (laughs) I don't know. I I mean, I haven't seen it, but I remember when it was uh, coming out and the advertisements for everything, and it looked better than most Schwarzenegger action films at the time. But, I mean, I don't know. Anything with Johnny Knoxville in it, I guess, is... uh, not for sure, <laughs> but it, it just seemed interesting, again, that not only, you know, do we have another Korean director who came over to America to make a, you know, a film here, but uh, or but also it was in the same year at that, 2013. Yeah, that's really interesting. That looks really fun. So that I might, have never seen it. That might be worth uh, considering or checking out. I don't know, it's just interesting to see the reflections, and again, how 
uh, Korean cinema is being, you know, embraced or being acknowledged, you know, by American audiences and that evolution there. So we had that period in time where we were aware of them to a certain degree that we were letting that, that we were having them make films for us for a year. Mm-hmm. I've kind of been enjoying the public deep dive into Korean cinema because it's surfacing a lot of visual stylists and like I said, ten million's almost nothing. That's like half the budget for like a Netflix ad campaign for the Oscars, right? So there, uh, I I yeah. love seeing how economical the Koreans are with their budgets. There were films in the nineteen fifties that cost you know ten million dollars, yeah. so <laughs> it's nothing. And it uses it so efficiently here. Like it, it has places and it has production design and it has action and feeling. And I mean, I could see why what's here is all we get because that's almost no money. Yeah. And there is, I think, a, I don't know how much cheapness you want to attest to the lack of budget comparatively or the fact that it was made in 2008. Uh, but, like, some stuff I noticed early on, I'm like, oh, this bird is super fake and the train is obviously CG. Yeah. And some of the uh, action work is a little, uh, you know, glossed over. You can kind of see the, the shine on it there. Oh, yeah. But, yeah there's but, a lot of uh, 2000s in there. Yeah, but uh, yeah, generally the action is on, really like, good. The, yeah. you, you focused on, like, the shaky cam, which is something that I, I also have a problem with here. It uh, feels very... It's not rigid. It's it's very I don't know flimsy. I don't know if I'll ever forgive Paul Greengrass for popularizing this super shaky action, you know, cinema of the two thousands. I could really like something <laughs> like Under the Skin, where we're getting a documentary, more cinema verite look at something alien. But uh, for something like this, I just want a steady cam. Right. Well, it's more handheld in cases like that. Uh, you know, it's the the problem with something here is that it's extremely frenetic and and they use it to cover up uh the the fakeness of the action a bit more so like the hits they 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 try and use it to make it to disguise the fact that you're not actually seeing the blows or anything uh and it could just be a little nauseating at some points which is a shame because i can see how great the cinematography itself is with these you know really great um long shots you know as they you know careen through the whole market areas and such there it's just that it's not stable at all and it's, it can be a little frustrating at points what i really forgot about it was how indiana jones it was um and in addition to all the leone it has that huge chase that feels so much like the um what is it the last crusades like tank sequence and everything that happens in that final act of indiana jones 3 Right, oh, and it's it's funny because at that same time I thought about how it felt like a film that clearly informed the chase scenes and stuff uh, of not only The Last Crusade but the first one. There, there's that specific call out where you have uh, Song uh, Kang Ho's character being dragged by the uh, car or, or by the horse. It was. Mm. Yeah. But, but that whole chase is there barreling through the desert with the with this battalion of horses, you know, chasing this lone vehicle, you know, going through. It reminded me so much of the finale of uh, Stagecoach, which, of course, is one of my favorite it's, westerns. That whole bit is very Indiana Jones meets Stagecoach. It's, it's, it's so inspired by, like, the whole bulk of westerns. It's not just stuck in Leone. Too. Right, and that, that was a big thing I wanted to acknowledge as well. But that, that final chase sequence in particular was probably the highlight of the film for me. It was so yeah. thrilling, fun... Uh, you know, very, you know, just really greatly demonstrated, and uh, despite how long every action scene is, because they feel very long, I think they're they're always <laughs> fun and kinetic. Uh, even yeah. back in like uh, 
I also really love the the fight sequence they had in like the market where you have uh, the character he's you know he's swinging around on the the rope stuff and whatever going around. Yeah, <laughs> there's some good stuff where he's using leverage and slinging up buildings and uh, a little bit of fun there with the uh, digital. Yeah, again, it's it's a little digital, but it's not like terrible. I still prefer seeing yeah. the creativeness of that as opposed to the very bland completely digital you know creations we have in most blockbusters nowadays this this one has a genuine feeling to its action still always throughout and it it has sense of humor too i love little sequences like when he he ducks up from behind the barricade and he's wearing the scuba gear oh yeah (laughs) just inviting them to shoot his head that it's was so, so much fun. Fiance was was cracking up like crazy when he put the <laughs> the helmet on, which is great. It's great stuff. That's the other strength of the film as well is that it has a great sense of comedy throughout. Yeah, it's it clearly knows how to be uh, just pure unadulterated entertainment, which it maintains throughout the entire picture. That's what I'm seeing about Song too. He's a very funny performer, and I realized that in the host too. And uh, the more I see, the more I'm sure that it's a confident and intentional choice all the time. Yeah, he's again, he's a very clear favorite for many of us who are just getting into Korean cinema here. A uh, good entry point and a fantastic actor to follow to expose ourselves to even more Korean cinema. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go off your bong watches, then I think song exploration is the next way to go. It's just, very interesting. And it's just nice to see that as well, because like, I'm sure many of us can recall that this is a similar process by which we explored our you know, very first American films as well when we first got into cinema. You start with you know, the actors you recognize, and you go from there and there and there, and you start recognizing certain collaborations, and you, you watch more directors and such like that. And that's a very similar process, I think, that many people, including myself, are going through to expose themselves to more... Uh, worldwide cinema but particularly korean right now oh yeah i mean you want to start with like the the most specific thing right like you want to go director actor then genre then you know decade and then you know keep expanding your world yeah and it's a it's a tried and true process that we see work i think across the board and uh you know this is another entry i'm glad to add to my uh collection of korean films i'm i'm seeing now I'm catching it's up. It's been one of my favorites for a long time. I don't think it's the best by any means. It's just such a fun watch that I could keep returning to. Oh yeah, this was this was totally fun, and I was uh, excited to get to it and watch it and uh, talk about it. Uh, and even though, like, I'm like, oh well, substance-wise, there's not a whole lot here. There, there is an interesting, I think, uh, level of a uh, kind of commentary in the setting we have. And early on mm. in the film, there's the. The obvious acknowledgement of the uh, the Chinese uh, occupation in the war, the fights with Japan going on that Korea was going through, the whole thing that kind of destabilized and reset their their country for uh, a little bit of time, and that's all present there, and it and it evokes that again that same feeling of uh, fighting to uh, you know maintain land again that that battle of. Uh, uh, I don't want to say pioneering, but you know what I mean, like that we see in Western films where it's, you know, this uh, maintaining of the land of some kind. Ah, I'm, mm. I'm missing the words, but, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. And there is a feeling of like a, a homesteading or wanting to protect something. Yeah. In the way that the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is about civil war or something, we could say that it's internal conflict. Well, I think you see it more in the uh, kind of American westerns we talk about. This, uh, like you said, homesteading, I think, was a, a great uh, verb for it there. Was that, you know, 
well, we talked about like like Shane before, where it's this idea yeah. of wanting to maintain the land while people are moving in and trying to take it away from you. Or again, you can see it as the the other way around, where it's the uh, forging of a new you know country trying to uh, take take the land, I guess, but in a less heinous way than American history is. It doesn't even feel like it's like chiefly political. I mean, no. it just has that bath. That, that backdrop of like 1930s or whatever right. China right and that's that's the and thing I is mean, that it's China and Japan it's just a backdrop which is the uh, you could say unfortunate but I think it's obviously an in- intentional thing the film does not want to be political or you know no. deeply commentative it just wants to be fun which it absolutely is it's just a lot of uh, it's action scene after action scene loosely connected by you know some you know very vague plot stuff about the map there might be a plot. There's sort of a plot. It's there, but it's not great. Like, the the map is practically a MacGuffin until the end. Like, it, it does have some kind of payoff or significance, but it's it's really just a thing to get to the place. Well, I'd agree with that. Um, I think we covered it pretty thoroughly, and despite going short, I think we talked about it a lot. I'm also sick. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's fair. It's fair that you want to sign off being sick. And again, you know, it's mostly just we wanted to come here and highlight how fun this is and take another look at uh, Korean cinema exploring outwards and seeing the Western influence there and uh, uh, highlight another very accessible and fun film for those people who are looking to get more into Korean cinema right now. Ultimately, despite being short, I'm really happy with the conversation here and uh, that we were able to highlight this one specifically among our Westerns. Yes, so another one for our Western list, some more variety. Uh, and again, we'll, I'm sure we'll find something next month as well to talk about this equally fun. We love Westerns and happy to add this one to our collection. Okay, until next time, gotta go fast. <laughs>